Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. I truly hope you've been enjoying this podcast. I really tried to introduce you to a diverse amount of topics around the role of BFR, such as bone, tendon, pain, and so forth. There's one paper here called Low Intensity Sprint Training with BFR Improves the 100 Meter Dash by a group out of Germany. I work as a strength and conditioning coach in the sport of track and field, and I do work with a couple of sprinters, so therefore this paper really drew my eye. As we all know, we're trying to find ways to be able to improve speed and potentially saw this as maybe a methodology to add to the toolbox for athletes out there who may be a sprinter. What this study initially introduced was that, as we all know, that running speed is an essential component of most sports. Although numerous aspects of sprint training have already been investigated, little is known about the lowest possible training intensity needed to achieve improvements in sprint performance. And this is always something I think most coaches are trying to achieve is what's the lowest minimal threshold of training intensity that we need to apply to be able to improve an athlete, especially in high-speed athletes that there's potential for injury risks such as hamstrings with maximal sprint exercises and therefore reduction in training intensity while retaining effective stimulus may have great practical interest. The early recruitment of fast-twitch fibers under restricted conditions may be beneficial for sprint performance as rapidly contracting and relaxing fibers are crucial for achieving high movement velocities. For example, one study by Cook et al. reported that the 40-meter sprint time in elite rugby players improved to a larger extent after BFR resistance training when compared with unrestricted resistance training at 70% of 1RM. Despite these promising effects of BFR on sprint performance, there's been no research to date has examined the effects of BFR when applied during sprint training. Therefore, this study aims to contribute to this growing area of research by exploring the question of whether a six-week low-intensity sprint training program with practical BFR positively affects the 100-meter sprint running performance, maximal isometric force, rate of force development, RFD, and muscle thickness of selected muscles. They also measured the acute systemic endocrine response after the first of 12 sprint training sessions. Therefore, the independent variables in this study consisted of the two different training modalities, with and without BFR, and the dependent variables included the 100-meter sprint running performance, the maximal isometric leg press force, the RFD, and the muscle thickness of the rectus femoris and biceps femoris. The dependent biomarkers were testosterone, human growth hormone, insulin light growth factor 1, cortisol, and the heart-type fatty acid binding protein, which is known to be a damage marker of muscle. 25 healthy male sports students were used in this study, and the participants were asked to refrain from any other sprint training throughout the intervention period. The procedure that they used here, they had the 100-meter sprint running test where they performed a thorough warm-up, and I mean a thorough warm-up, and they did two flat-out 100-meter sprint tests on an indoor track. The strength testing, the leg press maximal isometric force, and the RFD were tested using a leg press machine. Their inner knee and hip angles were locked into 120 and 60 degrees respectively, and a hip belt was used to secure this position throughout the test. They did three maximal efforts, and their best RFD determined force. The subjects then performed three isometric maximal contractions, 
where they aim to extend their knees and hips against the fixed footplate at maximal voluntary effort and velocity. The RFD was determined from the trial with the highest force output. The BFR in the study was applied to the proximal part of the upper thigh of the participants using elastic knee wraps, 13 centimeters wide. They mention here that BFR using elastic knee wraps with moderate perceived pressure at a scale of 7 out of 10 effectively induced venous pooling without arterial inclusion. It's important here to also note that markings were used to ensure that the wraps were pulled to only 75% of their maximum. The same submaximal pull was applied during the intervention. In all cases, the elastic wraps were layered with each rotation instead of spreading it out over the thigh. To ensure that the arterial blood flow was not occluded at this pressure, they assessed the blood flow of the arterial tibialis posterior. The muscle thickness was assessed for the rectfem and the bicep femoris to investigate whether the intervention elicited any hypertrophy adaptations on the trained musculature using ultrasound. The exercise training protocol was that both groups performed six consecutive 100-meter sprints on an indoor track at an intensity of 60-70% of their predetermined best sprinting performance. They had people there with stopwatches to actually ensure that they stayed around preset times or approximately thereof, and the rest periods between each sprint were set to one minute, where the participants of the BFR group were required to remain wrapped with their BFR straps. Blood samples were taken only after the first training session, and they were taken at pre, immediately post, 20 minutes and 120 minutes post-session, as well as 24 hours after the submaximal sprint session. Here we have quite a straightforward session. It's twice a week. They're only doing sprint sessions. One group has the cuffs on and the other group doesn't, running at quite an achievable 60 to 70% of their actual maximal 100-meter time. At this point, I'm getting quite excited saying this is quite a straightforward study and also they're getting some strength and maximal force measurements through an isometric leg press machine and as well as some muscle thickness to see if there's any hypertrophy gains. At this point, I'm reading the study and I'm thinking it's a really straightforward type design and I'm trying to actually get an idea of the level of the athletes. Now, in the actual paper, in the abstract, it says well-trained sports students, male. And when I look at their times, they're sitting around 12.4 seconds. Now, in the world that I work in, 12.4 isn't very fast. And I understand there's obviously constraints around getting elite athletes. However, I've got to obviously then take a consideration around the level of athlete and the type of response we might be looking at. The results here I'm going to keep quite simple. They actually go into quite a lot of detail around what they actually observed here. With respect to the results, there was significant change for the intervention group in the 100-meter time, the RFD for the leg press, and the muscle size in the rec fem and the biceps femoris, whereas there was no significant change in the non-BFR or the control group. In the BFR group, the 100-meter time improved from 12.42 to 12.05. That was their mean time, so 0.38 of a second versus only a 0.16 second change in the control group. Small change was observed in the RFD of the leg press. It improved by 6 kilonewtons per second. And in the rec fem, it increased 1.5 mils, whereas in the biceps fem, 1.8. With respect to the blood parameters that they measured, Lactate levels increased in both groups immediately post-sprint session. Human growth hormone experience increases for both conditions immediately post and 20 minutes post. However, there was no concurrent increase in IGF-1 concentrations post-sessions at any value. 
The testosterone concentrations increased significantly from pre to immediately post, and so did cortisol levels. The results also revealed a significant group-by-time interaction for the muscle damage marker of FABP, and that was across all time points. The increase in the muscle thickness of the rec fem in particular significantly increased in the BFR group, which indicated that the applied cuff increased the anabolic stimulus in the blood flow-restricted muscles, which is actually known in previous reviews and articles that we've done before. Furthermore, in their discussion, they said with their findings, the present study revealed that the muscle thickness of the rectus femoris significantly increased only in the BFR group. However, they should have also mentioned the biceps femoris as well significantly increased, which indicates that the applied cuff increased the anabolic stimulus in the blood flow restriction muscles. They said that the muscle thickness of the biceps brachii in the study remained virtually unchanged from pre to post. That would probably be something we'd expect to see in that the biceps brachii is in the arm. And with BFR use, I've typically found that you need to stimulate the muscle. If you look at the Cook study where he used lower body cuffs, he actually stimulated the upper body muscles through using bench press and also supine pulls. However, in this study here, all they're running is twice a week. They did no other training. They did no other strength work as well. Therefore, in my opinion, you would never expect to really see improvements in the biceps brachii in the upper body using lower body BFR cuffs when all you're doing is running twice a week. There's just not enough stimulus. Whereas in this case, I said the arm movement during the sprinting was possibly insufficient to elicit the described cross transfer. That is pretty obvious. They also spoke about in the discussion that using the cuff was not associated with greater strength gains compared to the control group. Again, you're probably in that mid-range of athletes where you need to be actually stimulating a little bit more in a movement that might actually elicit strength gains. In the discussion, they spoke about slow treadmill walking protocols as an effective training stimulus to elicit strength gains. However, when you probably look at the subjects, no doubt they're in between the two. You might have an untrained group of people. Of course, you're going to get stronger. You have a, well, they say well-trained in this group. However, you would probably need to have more stimulus in the lower body to actually get some sort of strength gain. With respect to the hormone response, they spoke a little bit about the lactate and really didn't mention anything about the other markers. And I really feel that having an acute measure at the start of the training study is not an indication of really what's happening to the body. I think with taking hormones, there's obviously a cost to this, and I appreciate that. However, I would imagine that the response of the athletes at the end of the session potentially could have been a little bit different than at the start, and you may have had chronic accumulation increase in hormone concentrations in the BFR group, and that would have been really fantastic to see. So in my opinion there, I think they've had a really missed opportunity with not taking a post-blood sample. However, once again, really respective of the group and the study that they did, and there's obviously complexities and stories around to why they may not have taken a post-blood sample. Specifically speaking, with respect to testosterone in the present study, the increase didn't differ between the two groups, but rather dropped significantly below baseline after two hours. And cortisol was significantly increased at post and significantly dropped 24 hours after the intervention. Part of this could also be that it was that initial first session and that a longitudinal study of these hormones may have actually displayed something a little bit different. And also you've got to realize that hormonal profiles or responses to a session are really individual and they're specific to the actual athlete themselves. 
Therefore, if you wanted a longer lasting rise in testosterone, for example, you may have actually had to change the stimulus. And this actually could have come back to the BFR stimulus themselves. They use an elastic strap, although they use an RP of 7 out of 10 and they used a measurement there. What actual pressure is that? And was that enough to actually elicit the response that they needed? And they also mentioned the strap stretched over six weeks. Therefore, did the pressure or the stimulus decrease over the six weeks? And in some studies, they actually increased the stimulus or the pressure applied over the course of the study because the athletes would actually get used to the stimulus or the stress applied to the body through the use of the cuffs. It's also interesting that there was no strength training and I've got to understand that they wanted to control this I think there would have been huge gains in performance if they would have actually performed some form of strength training through this period. That's more me just from a practical point of view as opposed to a pure academic type paper as in this case. However, I think there's something here with respect to certain groups of athletes out there when you're going through certain periods of time in your training program, typically earlier in the season as some form of different stimulus or change up to the athletes. This may actually play a part in your training program. Like most things, I actually gone out and tried this myself, and you've actually got to have the right type of cuffs. And in this case of this study, they use elastic knee wraps. The cuffs that I actually use has a removable pump, and they've got a thin enough profile that you can actually run with them. And with my bad right knee, I actually find I can jog really well, and I have no pain post. Therefore, I'm now thinking about football-type athletes who may have degenerative-type knees where in the middle of the week where they need to get some form of running load, does this now form a part of their low-load training, which has a greater specificity to the actual response to training loadings. Earlier, we talked about bone responses and so forth and actual tissue responses. So you still get the same tissue response by 100% of body weight as opposed to going on to unloaded type ultra-G situations where in some cases actually decreasing body weight may change your foot strike patterns and could therefore potentially lead to other type issues around the foot, Achilles and ankle. Something for consideration there. You know, I could definitely see this be used in, you know, high running type load sports such as AFL where you need to be getting some form of low mileage through the week. You can actually then put them on, do your run-throughs, decrease the pain in the joints and in the tendons as it's known to do, increase the activation of the musculature, potentially increase some form of hormonal profile within the body if there's enough stimulus and actually get 100% loading of body weight on the ground with very little pain. Something there definitely for consideration. However, I know at the elite level that there's a need to be running at 100% and then this would not form part of the majority of the session. And once again, though, it potentially could form something that some form of tempo type running once a week in that early general physical preparation phase. And on that note, we're going to go on to how you do BFR. And today on how you do BFR, I've got Joseph Coyne. Welcome aboard, Joseph. Thank you, good sir. Yeah, and Joseph's a strength and conditioning coach, track and field coach. Uh, I've known Joseph for a few years now. We always cross paths and I really enjoy his knowledge and his banter and his, just his general demeanor. And obviously with my passion with BFR, he's told me several times about just different stories with the work that he's done. But in particular, uh, he had some uh, surgery on his hip and he's told me a few times about how it's benefited his hip and, and his recovery so I thought I'd take the opportunity today to get him onto the podcast just to discuss about how he used it, his thoughts of it, what he did, and some thoughts moving forward. Cool. 
Mate, thank you so much for having me on. I guess to start with uh, my journey with blood flow restrictions, I had a guy that was working for me, now works for the Lions, Brisbane Lions, Salwyn Griffith. I'd seen some occlusion cuff before, but then Salwyn had said, look, I've got these occlusion cuffs. Could we have a little run with them? I was like, cool, I'm going to get some. So I gave Chris a call, ordered some. Around that time, I was having a lot of trouble with my hip. Whether it was a genetic thing, both sides of my family have had full hip replacements, um, or an environmental thing, I played football and was probably notoriously weak through my hips relative and inflexible through my hips relative to my size. But for whatever reason, I had a bad hip, a lot of arthritis. I went and had an arthroscope in 2013. It didn't do much, the surgery, unfortunately, and I ended up having a hip resurface in 2016. So now I have a metal prosthesis in my left hip. I beep every time I go through airport security. Uh, so I'm very used to getting patted down, going through airport security. But in between that time, especially after that first arthroscope surgery, I decided I'd use blood flow restriction a lot to try and help my rehabilitation. I use it in a couple of different ways. When you, any surgery you have, you'll normally have a physiotherapist in hospital come over to you and give you some exercises, little bodyweight exercises that you can do, things like heel slides, even quad contractions, things to stop any pooling of the blood or swelling or to help that swelling move through. And I, so I, I'd put the occlusion cuffs on when I was doing those exercises that the physio had given me, and then I'd also use them passively. I'd just put them around the top of my leg, pump it up to, say, 150, and sit there for five minutes, take it off for five minutes watching TV, sit there for five minutes, take it off for five minutes. And I thought that was really beneficial for me in terms of how quick it healed around then and how it made my hip feel subjectively, especially in those initial stages of, of that rehabilitation after that arthroscope. Those are the main things that I use for me. It didn't actually... That arthroscope was kind of like a waste of time for me. I, as I kind of alluded to, I had a, the hip resurface in 16, but I also used it prior to that hip resurface in like an attempt to maybe I don't need this hip resurface, I'm going to go all out. And this was a result of uh, I was part of this physiotherapist on the Gold Coast, David Battersby. He had his tightening exam for physio and one of his examiners was a guy called Anthony Hogan who's a big time groin rehab, groin injury prevention expert and one of their suggestions was you got to do a lot of work on the glutes and on the hips, make them really conditioned. So I'd walk around with the minivan in my pocket and sort of five times a day I'd be doing these little clams and abduction, adductions, internal rotations, all sorts of stuff, dropping down on the middle of the floor. But combined with that, I also used some BFR to take the edge off any pain I had and I'd be sitting at a desk. This was when I was in China actually, sitting at a desk, working away on my computer, put a cuff on, pump it up, leave it on for five minutes, boom, five minutes up, take it off, let it sit on the desk next to me five minutes, put it back on and off. And that was an attempt to try and really condition my hips in the hope that it might prevent any need for surgery. I still ended up having the surgery, but my hip definitely felt better from that work, that like really constant uh, sort of four to five times a day conditioning work and the beer faster. And you've done a lot of work yourself as a coach and what would be the difference you would have felt if you didn't have the cuff on versus the cuff? Yeah, so just subjectively, my hip would get really angry. Like, and that's the best way of describing it. Like if I was squatting down or lunging certain positions, and it would just get angry and it would be achy, really stiff to sit down would be another one, and really stiff to put my leg in any type of external rotation or like a favour position, like a figure four position. But using, so using the cuff, those things were 100% subjectively better. So I'd have it on for five minutes, and I wouldn't be doing anything. I'd just be sitting there with it occluded, and then I'd move around a bit. And whether it was 
like just getting blood flow in there, passively getting like increased amount of blood around the joint, look, it definitely helped me. What yeah. are symptoms? And there's a lot of evidence around passive BFR post-ACL injury in terms of attenuating muscle loss. You'll still lose muscle. However, there's some definite evidence around knees, and I think that's there's a lot of ACL research out there. So it's nice that you can actually draw a lot of information from other research to say, well, there is something potentially going to happen there. And I think just decreasing pain is, is a great thing because then you're able to actually perform the exercises. Mm, 100%. 100%. And in our conversations, uh, Joseph's done a lot of work in China in the sport of track and field and worked with the Chinese Olympic Committee over there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so do you want to tell a little bit about that? Because that's a really cool story in itself. And then some of the work you did with BFR with some of the athletes over there. Yeah, sure. So I had two jobs based in China. One was contract with the Rexos, uh, which was with the Chinese Olympic Committee, working at their version of the Australian Institute of Sport. It was called the NSTC, National Sports Training Centre. And athletes would come there for their rehabilitation after surgery. When I first got there, I wasn't the person taking care of that, but we had a physiotherapist there or two physiotherapists that would do a lot of that work. And they were really interested in BFR once they'd seen me use it. One guy that springs to mind, Julian Romero, great Argentinian physio, now doing a lot of work on the tennis circuit. He was right into it. Uh, we had a look at that. Uh, there was a JSCR position statement, maybe not, not position statement, but a review of blood flow restriction that we have had a look at. And there was a volleyball girl that springs to mind. This girl is sort of six 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 seven, and anytime you're taller, rehabilitations take a longer. In my experience, uh, you weigh more. Rehabilitations take longer, and the bigger bodies. But we used it a lot with her. And he actually left the left the COC and I kind of took over her rehabilitation. I can't recall, maybe it was a halfway through or a third way through, but we would use a lot of BFR with her to try and get muscle bulk around that distal quad, using it on the bike, using it on the knee extension machine, uh, using it in certain types of walking patterns, gait patterns we wanted, and also to provide that little bit of pain relief that you get, that sort of uh, analgesic effect you get from it. Uh, we used a lot. So I, I used it in that, and that sort of return to sport. I also used it with a long jump, it had a knee arthroscope. And we did a lot of knee extension work and BFR work. I've, I've used it with some pretty famous footballers, guy that is Achilles at the Olympics. And I, when I went over and worked with him, would put it just below the knee and do uh, hundreds and hundreds of reps of unweighted kneeling calf raises, things like that, and even had put it on passively as well. And when I get into conversations with people about how they use it, and I dig a little bit deeper, they tend to always bring out a little gem. Is there any other exercises that you've done it and you've gone, I haven't seen it done like this, but we'll give it a go? I use like a, I use a couple of things for Achilles. So a kneeling, half kneeling calf raise where the front leg's doing the calf raise. And I use that just to start do pumps through the leg. Um, we also used it just seated flutters, like how you would, uh, it's common for a physio exercise to be seated on the floor, legs straight and just do maybe 50 to 100 calf raises where it's mainly just going back and forth to get blood moving through there. So I use it like that. I'll also do a crouching calf raise with it. I'm just thinking back to what I've used it. But actually, my journey didn't actually start with Sal. My journey started with Ben Rosenblatt at the EIS, and I went to see him. I went and talked there in 2000. Maybe it was 2013. Like, he talked on BFR. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is like- really cool. And I went out to Bishop Abbey in, in London and, uh, and how he used it, and that actually really inspired me. I basically... And Chris, you can correct me uh, or update me on what to how to use it, but I basically used his sort of three sets of 20 reps or four sets of 15, whatever it was, with 
with a certain amount of rest that those are just my go-to uh, go-to protocols with it. Yeah, and like the big one now is the seventy-five rep protocol, 30, 15, 15, 15. I actually just use high reps, three sets of fifteen, three mm-hmm. sets of twelve. I think what it is is just the high reps with the low load on a continuous manner just gets that huge amount of accumulation of metabolites as a result of it. And so I personally don't get too bogged down, whether it's three sets of 20 or is it 30, 15, 15. It's just about just working. And when you look a lot in academic papers, they tend to do just one exercise. However, in a real-world rehab setting, you're probably doing three to four, if not more exercises. So over the course of the whole session, I feel you're getting enough metabolic stress to create the adaptations that you need. And also when you're looking at 20% of RM in an elite athletic population, those loads are so much higher, even just the pure body weight, the athletes are so much higher than in traditional academic papers. Therefore, I've just used my own experiences just to adapt it. So whether it's three sets 20 or 15s, I think as long as the reps are high, low, load is low, and the pressure set correctly, I think you're doing a really good service to, to your athletes. Yeah, I agree. It's like for me, it was they can get some work through or some adaptation through the tissue or the joint that you want with a low load that's not going to cause much mechanical stress, hopefully, but there'll still be some hormonal stress potentially or some architectural stress. I don't know the correct term there or how to say that quite how my mind is telling me to say that. And I was like, this is great because now if I've got a person that's banged up and doesn't want to, say, do a leg press or a squat or a knee extension with a certain amount of weight, they can do it with 30% of that weight but put the blood pressure cuff on and they'll get some type of adaptation that might be very close to what they'll be doing outside of it. And they're probably not going to feel as sore or joints aren't going to feel as angry post that session. I think also a lot of the research focuses on 30%. And I've done some work in the football codes and it's amazing when even at say 70, 80% of RM and you put it on them and they go, oh, my knee pain, knee pain's gone. Mm-hmm. You know? And then you talk to them about, oh yeah, I've always had knee pain. So I saw my tendons. And so there is a place in that high load lifting. There's just not a lot of research out there. There's definitely one paper with Christian Cook using 70% of one RM, but there's not a lot using high loads. And I think there is definitely a place and definitely an elite sport. And I think it has an important place in, say, a football or a, a contact-based sport where you're pretty banged up. You still need to lift a high load to maintain some form of performance enhancement of the muscle architecture, but you want to decrease pain. And it's not bad if you can if you can knock off ten percent of loading through your spine, especially like saying rugby union where you're packing a lot of scrums. That axial compression and loading from a game is really high, and then if you're then compounding that with the training through the week, you know if you can decrease that stress a little bit while still maintaining performance, I think there's something there. You definitely do. It's interesting you bring up axial loading. It's one of the biggest things I take as a like if I sit with a track and field hat on. And say with squats is one of the biggest things I try and do leading into competitions, decrease the axial loading to the point where I'm very big on athletes wearing belts throughout the season just to prevent this shrinkage um, as much as possible. But then also making sure that axial loading, because if the nervous system is runs through our spine, if there's anything interfering with the nervous system messages to the tissue and the intermuscular coordination, which technically, if you have too much axial loading, that, that may happen. Um, I want to reduce that as much as possible leading into competition. So using a cuff around that to decrease any decrease it as much as possible is, is a big factor for me as well. Yeah, and in terms of athletic performance, load is still king. 
and and that's one thing I always say to people: this is not an excuse to go. Oh, we can now lift light weights; we'll be fine. There's something about having a load, but you're right. You know, if you can decrease it just that little bit, definitely, I think it'll leave that little bit more juice in the tank coming into competition. Yeah, and doesn't it doesn't mean you're uh, getting rid of a squat or anything no. like that, but yeah. you're you might just be modifying the exercise or doing a different type of exercise or something like that to make sure. But I was I was interested, like when I think back about, especially with the long jumper, I used maybe six to eights. Like so, I'll do some BFR at six to eight with a knee extension then we'd also do some BFRs with sort of 15 to 20s and the reason why I did that was I almost felt that the 6 to 8s were probably a bit more beneficial really subjective really just me going unscientific as unscientific at Mr Coin and going I reckon those are doing you better than the 15 to 20s and maybe it was because he was like a sprinter fast twitch guy he would be in all sorts in the 15 to 20s absolutely yeah. all sorts 6 to 8s he would be in not so bad a shape like and face moaning and groaning but uh it was like his knee was responding to that getting stronger and stronger and stronger and i think also minimal dose you know we have to think as coaches we want to give enough to the athlete so that they respond but if we can get away with doing six to eight it just makes sense you, you know rather than doing 15s because that's what research traditionally says because that's in that rehab setting it hasn't taken that research is that performance and this is all n of one you know we're talking high-end specific modification of training programs for that person and athlete buying is important you know if the athlete is going to do it at, at sixes that's better because you, you know you're doing something for them as opposed to forcing them to do something they're just reluctant to do sure principle of efficiency yeah do as least as possible to get as much as possible so one of my one of my trademarks that one nice i like that <laughs> there cool. you go so that's really good outline so thank you very much for doing that and thank you very much for telling us about your story of your own BFR use, but also how you implement it as a practitioner. I know you're very busy at the moment. You've got a few things on the go. Just want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, so currently I have a, I'm doing a PhD. I've got some sort of off-season programs running. If you're interested, it's coinsportsinjuryclinic.com.au. This is for sort of pro footballers in the off-season. Based out of Surfing Australia's HBC at the moment, they come up and do a bit of work and mainly around speed development and change of direction mechanics, that sort of thing, and doing a little bit of uh, track and field coaching. A couple of sprinters, hopefully we do well in this upcoming Australian season. Yeah, definitely. And while I've got you here, you've got a couple of other really cool strings to your bow in terms of diet and is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a ISDCN, International Society of Sports Nutrition. I'm accredited sports nutritionist with them. I go around collecting these little uh, qualifications like I'm a – sports scientist with ESA and exercise physiologist with ESA. But yeah, sports nutrition has been a massive interest of mine, massive interest. I dig all the, uh, like I was getting blood tests done every sort of six months from like 2009 to 2013 and really getting into that sort of thing, looking at IgG, IgA, food sensitivity stuff, looking at stool tests, organic acid tests. Really, I guess, inspired by Charles Pollock when he's like, like in Charles who recently passed away, sadly, but I likened him to a gateway drug. You go to one of his courses and then you come out with like marijuana for like people going on to be drug addicts, you know what I mean? It's, it might be the wrong way of saying it in all respect, but you go there and you, like, you hear about all these, this different type of functional medicine or you hear about this different type of rehabilitation like ART or these other things. You're like, wow, I need to start looking at this stuff. So that was a really big, really big interest area of mine is that nutrition and i've been recently looking at like dna effects and and what's going on with the dna and certain 
Well, actually, I, I won't say recently. We did a myself and my wife did 23andMe, which is a common DNA test in 2011, and like it tells you all sorts of cool stuff. For instance, um, and some people can be a bit fatalistic about this too. They can be, like, I don't want to know what I'm going to die about, but I'm like, I want to know what I got to prepare for. What's going to help me mm. focus my my efforts on? So, for instance, I've got this gene called APOE4 gene, which means I'm about or maybe 40% more likely to have a heart attack, but I'm really low cancerous. So I know for me, I need to concentrate on cardiovascular things, things like whether our offspring will be better off being breastfed versus being on formula. We can kind of tease things like that out. Things like uh, alcohol dehydrogenase gene will tell me whether I'm better off having a few drinks a day or like maybe one drink a day or two to three drinks a week versus not drinking at all. Caffeine genes. How are you going to respond to caffeine? I respond to caffeine terribly. You give me you give me some caffeine and I go anxious and I feel like the world's closing in on me. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going crazy. Um, I'll get nauseous, that sort of thing. So, I come from also a teaching background as well. Like I'm a trained PE teacher, but there's so many books out there. Like say, for instance, the Talent Code is, is a book that I'm sure the listeners are familiar with, where it's like. Or even the 10,000 hour rules is a great explanation. Everyone said a 10,000 hours rule. You put 10,000 hours into a certain activity, you will be world class at. That is not true. Categorically untrue. You cannot put 10,000 hours into being a world-class sprinter and be a world-class sprinter if you are not genetically talented. I'd say there's about a 50-50 uh, relationship between environment and your genetics, and I want to learn more about the genetics. But any track and field coach or any PE teacher will tell you some kids are talented at other things and some kids aren't, and those kids that aren't, no matter how hard they try, they may never be talented at anything, and that's just life. But that's what really got me. Like, I really enjoy that sort of study on genetics right now, and it's part of my interest area for sure. Oh, cool. That's insightful. I really like these side projects that you're doing, and you put some stuff out there on Instagram and Twitter. So where can they find you there? Oh, yeah, so it's just my name, at Joseph Coyne, uh, so J-O-S-E-P-H-C-O-Y-N-E. Yeah, I put up a little bit of stuff on the old gram and, and the Twitter, so look if you if you're interested. It's mainly about speed and speed development, I guess. A couple of photos of my daughter and my wife and me now and then. Uh, but yeah, so if you're interested, jump on and and see what it's about. And I've liked some of the hip routines and the hamstring stuff that you've put on there, mate. Hips don't lie, hundred percent. As Sakura said, hips yep. don't lie. One thing from having these multiple hip surgeries, I wish I'd done more to prepare my hips, not just for strength and like in terms of conditioning them, but also range of motion movement fluidity and a lot of stuff I was influenced a lot by my work in China and just the physical culture of their elderly like go down to a local park and there'll be an 80 year old doing the splits on a park bench like facing into the park bench sitting on top of the sort of handrails doing the splits and then you're like wow if they can move like that at that age maybe they have slightly different hip anthrokinematics whatever but I'm going to do my best to move like that and so the philosophy is you want to be like bamboo bend but not break yeah, so definitely check out the videos. I know they're on Instagram. I, I've definitely taken a lot from, from those videos and actually given to some of the athletes that I work with as well. And they enjoy it. Um, it's like everything. We take something from someone else and it's a cool thing about the industry. So thank you very much, Joseph, for your time. Really appreciate it. Mate, appreciate it. Thank you. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Gavilio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump.